Good morning, church. As we continue to worship the Lord this morning, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. We're specifically going to begin in verse 1 and move through verse 32 as we look at the Passover. For those of you who are visiting with us, welcome to Dawson. We're so glad that you're here. Dawson, would you join me in welcoming our guests and thanking our DMA kids for leading us so beautifully this morning. We're thankful for Kimberly Jones and her wonderful leadership of the Dawson Music Academy, and we're thank for, thankful for all of our instructors and to have uh, these boys and girls leading us this morning was a tremendous highlight for all of us here. We're walking through the book of Exodus, and so we've come now to the central part of the very story of God's redemption of His chosen people out of bondage in Egypt and into the promised land that He would call them to and lead them to in the chapters ahead. Exodus chapter 12 is what we know as the Passover. This is the central event in the history of Israel. This is the main event. This is the crescendo that we have been building to uh, from the very beginning of the story of Exodus. It is the culmination of ten signs, ten plagues that God brings upon the Pharaoh and also the nation of Egypt to be able to set his people free. It, it is the angel of death that will come. I, you know, it's interesting. When, when was it that you were familiar with death? Um, I know it's a heavy question to ask on a Sunday morning so early. Maybe I was five, maybe I was six. I don't remember all the details of the conversation, but I remember vividly my mom walking into the living room. There were tears in her eyes. And she said, David, I need to talk to you. I don't remember exactly what she said, but the gist of it was is that Grandpa had been in an accident. Now, I was five, I was six. Surreal was not a word in my vocabulary, but that's what I was experiencing. There was, there was this disconnect because just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Grandpa's lap riding this old John Deere tractor on his land, and now my mom was telling me that he was in heaven. That there, there was something about the whole experience that seemed so weird and so strange to me. I had nothing but questions. I mean, Where's heaven? Will I go to heaven? How did this happen? When did this happen? All of those kinds of questions that you would imagine that you would have. It, it was as if a thief had broken into the house and stolen something that I didn't know that you could lose, and that was life itself. Just like that. Fast forward, I was maybe 10 years old. I was staying with my older cousin. It was a Friday night. He was flipping through the channels, and he lands, and he, uh, you know, again, the details are a little bit uh, iffy to me here, but he, he lands on the David Letterman show, Late Night with David Letterman. And he says, hey, that's, that's the Joker in the new Batman movie. Well, I was excited about this. I was about 10 years old. I was excited to be able to go see Michael Keaton in the sort of the first run of the Batman movies. And so I remember just watching this with tremendous attention. And again, 
don't remember all the details, but I remember there was a setup where David Letterman asked the Joker himself, Jack Nicholson, is there anything, Jack, that you are afraid of? Sort of prying him for his phobias. And, and I'm 100% sure it was intended to be some type of setup to, to lead into the next joke. But it was in that moment that even as a 10-year-old, I could see that he was squirming in the couch at the question. And he sort of hemmed and hauled his way through it and eventually said, you know something, Dave? I'm, I am scared of death. there was something so impressionable to me as a 10-year-old. I, I, I couldn't articulate it, but what I felt was, is here's a person who just exudes confidence, who has everything that the world could offer him. He's got fame, he's got fortune, that much that I knew he was sort of at the height of popularity, but even that did not make him immune to the fear of what would occur to any and every person that lives on earth. That death would knock on his door. As a pastor, I, I, I guess I've had hundreds of conversations. Hundreds of conversations with people who are looking death into the eyes. Maybe they don't know if it's days, they don't know if it's weeks, they don't know if it's months, but, but the diagnosis is terminal. They, they understand that, that, uh, that there is not an infinity of years before them, and it's in that moment what is, I, can, I can speak to with tremendous confidence is that uh, hundreds of these conversations have ended with the person saying, you know, I, I, I'm not looking forward to this. But there is a calm, there is a peace, there is a strength even in their voices. They're looking at, and with 100% accuracy, what all of those conversations have had in common is that their hope has lied not in plaques on a wall. Their hope in the face of death does not come from uh, the balancing retirement account. Their hope in the face of death has never come from their career, but with 100% accuracy, what has given them hope, what has given them peace, what has given them calm in the face of death has been a person. The Bible terms the Prince of Peace, Jesus himself. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. This is what the Passover is all about. What is our hope when death knocks on our door? What will God use to break the bondage of slavery and bring His people out of, of Egyptian bondage in the tyrannical reign of Pharaoh upon all of them for hundreds and hundreds of years? And we read of the very hope in Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, verse 3, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. 
Your lamb should be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Moving to verse 11, In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all of the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Verse 13, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, hence the Passover, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now again, I know if you are jumping into this story, you don't really feel the full weight of what has come before this, but I just remind you, this is the culminating plague upon the nation of Egypt. God has called Pharaoh to, through Moses and Aaron to let his people go. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He has hardened his own heart. Both his culpability and God's sovereignty is reigning over this story here. And God is going to make his name famous in the midst of the Egyptians here. And all of these plagues that have come before have been an attack upon the false gods of Egypt. As he turns the Nile River into blood with the first sign and wonder that he produced early on in the story, we see that as the Egyptians deified the Nile River, as they worship the Nile River, we see that God is making a claim. He is saying, I am the only true God in this world and in this universe. There's only one. And so each of these signs, they, they build upon one another until we come to this very place. And the details, they seem so strange to our ears uh, thousands of years later. But they're simple. They're clear. Take a lamb, one year old, without defect, sacrifice it at twilight, take the blood and smear the blood upon the sides of the doors, upon the top of the door frames. And the Lord, through the angel of death, is going to pass through Egypt and there will be death upon every firstborn creature. But the blood that covers the homes, the blood that covers the homes would be passed over and the judgment of death would not come to that house. It briefly describes the actual event. If you go to verse 29 of Exodus chapter 12, notice you have almost two times the information about the preparation and then the actual details of it are just very quickly and cursorily given to us, starting in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Notice the comprehensive nature of this Passover event. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! 
Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. This is what will break the heart of Pharaoh. This is what will break his grip upon the people of Israel. There are few passages in all of the Bible that I think are as sobering as this passage here. Maybe it's because I've heard the cry of a parent mourning the loss of a child, and there's nothing more gut-wrenching. That very grief has struck my own family in very painful ways. And so to read that at some point after midnight, there was a lone voice heard in Egypt that just realized their firstborn child had died. And soon that lone voice and well was joined by another in Egypt, but then another in Egypt. And one of the saddest passages in all the Scripture, verse 30, that there was a great cry in Egypt, but there was not a house where someone was not dead. Now it's important as we look at this passage here to realize it isn't just the Egyptians that experienced this pain. That every Hebrew family that didn't do what God had commanded, this would occur to them also. If they didn't sacrifice a lamb, if they didn't cover their door frames with the blood as God instructed them, their firstborn child would die. So God chooses in this moment to provide a substitute. See, the same fate would be their fate, a Hebrew or Egyptian alike here, both Hebrew and Egyptians, while they have so much in uh, that, that are distinctive in the story, they have this in common. They are sinners alike here, and God commands these people to cover their door frames with blood, not because God can't tell exactly who's inside each house, but, but, but precisely because He knows who resides in each house. You see, there are sinners that reside in all of these houses in every home. The next morning, the death count is the same. Every home the next morning, the death count is the same. There is a lifeless corpse in each home, and the question is, is it a lamb or is it a child? And the lamb was the substitute. The blood was the sign of the substitute that was offered. And this was true then, and it is true today. You see, this story, which is the very foundational story of the freedom that the Hebrew people have received as God has called them out of slavery, really, as Christians, is a preview of coming attractions of our freedom, our deliverance, our salvation. Hundreds of years after the Exodus, there was a bridge prophet by the name of John the Baptist he really holds together the Old Testament and he's passing the baton into the New Testament and he's walking around and he's read the Old Testament and he's walking around and he, and he sees this person who seems to be the very Messiah. And in John chapter 1, verse 29, we read Scripture telling us, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And who is he speaking of? He is speaking not of a Passover lamb, but he is speaking of Jesus himself. Now, it's easy to miss what really is the most significant word in all of chapter 1, verse 29 of John's gospel. And that's that word right, behold, right between behold and lamb. Do you see it? The. You see, Jesus isn't 
a lamb of God, but Jesus is the lamb of God. And as Christians, we hold on to the truth that we're saved from our sins because not of anything that we can do or have done, but rather our salvation is found in God the Father sending and giving His own Lamb, His own firstborn Son for the deliverance of us, His creatures. It's interesting when we think of it this way that that God the Father knows the grief of loss. The God the Father knows what it is to, to lose what is most precious to Him through death. He sends His only Son. So when we lay down our head at night, we can truly rest in the peace of knowing that while we are sinners, we are covered through the blood of Jesus, that while we deserve death, the greatest news is that Jesus died in our place. And that the blood of Jesus covers our lives. And that God gives us a Passover lamb. And as Christians, we're redeemed just like the Hebrew people. We're redeemed as we trust Jesus. He redeems us from slavery. He redeems us from the Egypt of our sins. He redeems us from the very tyranny of not Pharaoh himself, but Satan himself. And we receive through Jesus the very benefits, not only in life, but also in the face of death. Last week in the Atlantic magazine, there was an article that was written by a popular writer and pastor by the name of Tim Keller. Uh, Many of you know the name Tim Keller through his books. Some of you know him through his ministry as a pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. Tim Keller, about a year ago, published a book called Own Death, Own Death. A couple of weeks after that book uh, hit the marketplace, he received a diagnosis that many of you are familiar with of of advanced uh, pancreatic cancer. And so in this Atlantic magazine, he's reflecting upon what these last months have been like as he's uh, received treatments and the sobering news of this diagnosis has sunk into not only himself, but also his wife, Kathy. And And he writes with just tremendous candor and tremendous faith. So reading that this last week, I thought I would share a little bit of his words because I think the words that intersect all of our lives as he reflects honestly and vulnerably about his fears and his grief and even his hope. He says, quoting him, most particularly for me as a Christian, Jesus' costly love His death and His resurrection has become, in the face of my diagnosis, not just something I believed and filed away, but a hope that sustains me all my day. He says, I I pray this prayer daily. Occasionally it electrifies, but ultimately it always calms me. He prays, and as I lay down in sleep and rise this morning, Only by your grace, keep me in the joyful, living remembrance that whatever happens, I will someday know my final rising because Jesus Christ laid down in death for me and rose for my justification. Keller continues, in the face of treatments, to our surprise and encouragement, he says, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, 
the more we're able to enjoy it. This change was not an overnight revolution, he writes, as God's reality dawns more upon my heart slowly and painfully and through many tears, the simplest pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. It's only as I've become, for a lack of better terms, more heavenly-minded that I can see the material world for the astonishingly good divine gift that it is. I can sincerely say, without sentimentality or exaggeration, that I have never been happier in my life. that I've never had more days filled with comfort. But it is equally true that I've never had so many days of grief. When I take the time to remember how to deal with my fears and to savor my joys, the consolations are stronger and sweeter than ever. What is our hope? in life and death. What, what is your hope in life and death? You know, for the Christian, we don't frolic to funerals. We, we don't see death as sort of this Pollyannish, cup-half-field mentality. Now, there's something deeper. There's something that transcends. There's something that comes out of the mouths and the prayers and the very vestiges of a person that you know who is a follower of Jesus even in the face of loss and even in the face of death. And it is not just mere sentimentality. It's not just Hallmark card pious sort of statements. It's, it's not Hollywood hope. It is something that is, is born at a very deep place here. It's looking the inevitable in the eye and knowing that death itself doesn't get the last word in the life of a believer. That death is ominous as it is, as uncertain as it is, as much of a thief as it is, we know as followers of the one who has defeated death that my Savior, Jesus, gets the last word in our life. And even when uncertainty comes our way, even when sorrow fills our days, even when tears are close to us and pain haunts us, Christ alone gives us hope when we face whatever our tomorrows bring. This is the hope of the Passover. This is the hope of the Passover lamb, Jesus. We have a game in our house. I take the boys to school. And we have sort of the Spotify playlist routine. And so my youngest son will say, hey, dad, can I pick the song? And so all of our boys have gone through different musical genre interest. But lately, my, my youngest nine-year-old has gotten on a Johnny Cash kick, <laughs> which means my, my son is cooler than your son. So, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. 
I'm kidding. But it was pretty cool. First time uh, I gave him back, and, he, and then I heard, hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I was like, wow, wow, Jonathan, way to go here. So it's led me down this sort of Johnny Cash rabbit hole, and many of you are familiar that when Johnny Cash was coming to the end of his days here on earth, he was in a recording studio, really to the very end. Rick Rubin was a producer, and the, the last album that he produced for Johnny Cash is an album that was entitled Ain't No Grave. There's one song that Johnny Cash wrote on that album. Everything else are sort of traditional country songs, traditional hymns that he's recording, but there's one song that Johnny Cash wrote, and, and the title of that song is 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Just to remind you, those are Paul's words writing to the church at Corinth where Paul writes, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And at the very end of Cash's song, he, he writes and he sings, Oh, let me sail on with the ship to the east and keep my eye on the north star. When the journey is not good for men or for beasts, I'll be safe wherever you are. Christian, do you know? Do you believe that when that day comes for you, as it will come for all of us, that you, my friend, will be safe because you will be where He, your Savior, is? What is your hope in life? What is your hope in death. Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to you in the silence of this moment, looking inward, asking, what is my hope in life or death? God, we want to just sit in the silence of this moment and talk to You, thanking You that You have sent Your Son as our Passover lamb. Thank you, Jesus, that our hope in life and death is that you are the true, the only Passover lamb. And that the blood of Christ shed for us upon the cross, when it is smeared upon the very door frames of our heart, so we are safe. Safe not by what we have done, but what you have done. Not by our actions, but your finished action upon the cross. Sustain us in the journey of the unknown 
knowing true hope is found only in you. Amen.